As we uh, dive into this morning, a couple things. Number one, this is going to be PG-13. I just want you to know that. Um, I have a girl, who's, a daughter who's going to be a sixth grader, Kate, and I would be perfectly fine with her being here, but I just uh, want to put that out there to parents. We're all different in how we parent, so it's going to be PG-13. Uh, second thing, what I want to do is hand out some text right now for, for you to read. Um, as we go through this this morning. Uh, Are we up for that? Well, we'll find out right now. Does anyone uh, want... Can someone take Exodus 25, verse 8? I got it. Got it, thank you. How about Leviticus 26, 11? Thank you. Um, How about Genesis 3, verse 8? Thank you. That'll be the first one, by the way. How about Hosea 9.10? Thank you. How about Psalm 106.28-31? This one needs to be a loud reader. Thank you. Good. That's Psalm 106.28-31. And then how about Isaiah 62, verse 5? Right here. Thank you. I love it. A lot of the people that have gone on my Israel trips are raising their hand. They know, they know what's going on here. This is good. Okay, our text today is Numbers 25. Let's go there. Okay, you sit for my words, but we stand for God's words, so let's stand. This is found on page 128 if you have a Bible like mine. Numbers 25, beginning with verse 1. While Israel was staying in, kind of an unfortunate town name here, it's actually not Shittim, okay? Uh, In Hebrew, it's Shittim. So, while Israel was staying in Shittim, actually, the Shittim is going to hit the fan here, too. (laughs) Sorry. That was definitely off the page. (laughs) So while they're staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal, bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, impale them in broad daylight before the sun, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's leaders, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Pinhas, or Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man, and into the woman's stomach. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, Those who died in the plague, number 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am. And I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, Phinehas, I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. This is God's word. You can be seated. So who would like to preach this this morning? First, we need to know where we are in, in the biblical story. Okay, the first temple that God establishes on earth is what? It's the Garden of Eden. Okay, in in, in Genesis 2 verse 8, 
Going back right to the beginning when God created the world, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Um, This is the first sanctuary. Sanctuary is where we walk with the holy. It's the first temple. It's the garden. The first priests, then, of this temple are who? Adam and Eve. They're made in God's image, which is priestly, because what a priest does is they not only reflect back to God, who God is, but they also are invested with God's glory and dignity so they can reflect that into all creation. And they are the guardians, then, of this temple. That's why a few verses after verse 8 in Genesis 2 and verse 15, it said the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. As priests, they're the guardians of this garden. Because what they're to do is to preserve the power source. That's where God is. That's where God is infusing all creation with himself. I mean, without that garden, the world goes dark. And they are to, they are to protect that garden and, and to protect God's presence and God's honor. In fact, that's what makes the world a paradise. Why there is perfect peace permeating all creation. It's because of the garden. It's where Adam and Eve walk with God, where they're plugged into God, and where God's presence just flows into them and out of them into all creation. But we know they failed. They unplugged themselves from God. All was lost. The world loses its garden, falls back into chaos. It's cut off from God. But here's the deal. God didn't just look at the world he made and just said, okay, I'll let that thing just kind of go off into space and I'll start again. God loves the world. He made it. And he's going to rescue it. And God is a gardener. And he's going to replant that garden. He's going to reestablish Eden, his temple. He's going to raise up a kingdom of priests who are going to be plugged into him and whose purpose then will be to priest his presence and glory into all creation. So I love what he does. He takes the least of all people, this nation of slaves. First of all, he rescues them from bondage. He redeems them from Egypt. Then he puts them through boot camp for 40 years in the wilderness to make them holy. Because if you're going to be a nation of priests, you need to be holy. But God also in that desert not only cleans them up, restores his likeness to them so they can priest, but he reconciles them to himself. He takes them as his bride. In that barren wasteland, God and his people experience this incredible honeymoon. It's a renewal of Eden all over again. Now, do you remember what I said a few weeks ago about the first usage of a word? In the Bible, when a word is first used, that almost becomes a dictionary. So whenever you read that word again, if you want to know the best definition of a word, go back to its first usage. What's the first usage of the word walk? Does anybody know? Who has Genesis 3.8? Awesome. In other words, Genesis 3.8 lets us know Adam and Eve walked with God. We were made to walk. But not just walk however we want or with whoever we want. We were made to walk with our spouse. Not just this spouse, but this spouse. Who has Exodus 25 verse 8? Because now we're fast forwarding into our story and time period of that. Anybody? Read that thing. In uh, Exodus 25 verse 8. 
There it is, sanctuary. What's God saying? This is where we walk with the holy. Um, In fact, let me just show you what God instructed them to build so you can kind of picture this. And I love this picture because you see all the, the, the tents around that tent. Those are God's people. But God says, hey, give me a tent. You have your tent, I want my tent. I want my tent right in the center. And when you build me my tent, I'll walk among you. Uh, Leviticus 26, verse 11. Who has that verse? Just leave that up. Okay, keep going. Because I think the next part says, and I will walk, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will walk among you, and be your God, and you will be my people. Is that what it says? Ever present. That's your translation. It literally says halak, to walk. God says, you built this? I'm going to walk among you. In fact, it's a unique word, use of the word walk. It's not just walk, but walk among. And it's the same word that's used in Genesis 3, verse 8. In other words, God is reestablishing Eden. This is Eden. God's replanting his garden. The garden is, is his tabernacle. It's, it's where God, as husband, is going to walk with his bride, his people. Okay, so this is the context, then, for today's story. Because they are now 38 years into that 40 years in the desert. They're almost to the end. And what's next? Promised land. Okay, let me show you where they are, literally, in terms of, of space. First of all, I'll show you a map. Okay, there's the Dead Sea, and sorry I don't have all of it, but I'm going to assume you at least know a little bit about the biblical land. You see uh, Shittim? That's right where they are. Once they cross the Jordan, they're in. They're so close. But now let me just show you what it looks like physically there. Okay? Right there to your left is, is the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River would be coming right up there, and then that land beyond is desert of all things. Like, that's what they get to see. First thing when they see promised land is desert. They're probably thinking, oh my goodness, we just left desert, that's what this is? Um, that's how close they are. It's here where the Moabites we're kind of up here where this picture is being taken in this region. And then all the way that way down south are the Midianites. And they're seeing this great upstart nation down there in the valley. But even more than that, they see the finger of God on this people. So they're frightened. They conspire to take out Israel. I don't know if you remember the story of Balak and Balaam. Balak's the Moabite king. Balaam's the Midianite prophet or sorcerer. Remember, Balak asked Balaam to pronounce this curse on Israel. So Balaam goes up this high mountain, maybe even the mountain from which that picture was, and uh, looks down on Israel and tries so hard to damn them. But when he opens out his mouth, the only thing that comes out is blessing. The very words of God. Plan A doesn't work. So then these guys resort to plan B. We can't curse them. We can't damn them. And let's destroy them by seducing them. Let's get them. Let's seduce them to worship our gods. So they send all their hotties into Israel's camp. Uh, and these hotties invite the Israelite men over for visits. And the men visit, and it's not too difficult to see what these visits were about. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with, with Moabite women. More literal reading, the Israelite men played the whore with these women. Now, we've talked about this before. I want you to remember that pagan forms of worship were almost always sexual. 
because the gods of choice in the ancient world were the Baals and the Asherahs, which were the gods of fertility. And when you go to that part of the world, you realize what a precious resource water is. Because if they don't get enough rain, there's going to be famine and people are going to die. So they believed that the rains were thought to be Baal's sperm. The earth was Asherah's womb. And it was crucial to them that Baal mate with his mistress Asherah. Now they also thought that the way that you worship these gods is you just mimic what you want them to do. So to get Baal and Asherah to mate and bring rain, the people would mate like crazy with temple prostitutes. And sometimes they'd hold these huge festivals that became orgy in nature. People would gorge on food, they'd binge on alcohol, and they'd indulge in sex. In fact, Baal of Peor literally means the Lord of the opening, which is very sexual in its name. And see, in the ancient world, I, I want us to understand this, you really can't separate pagan worship or idolatry from sexual immorality. It's almost one and the same, because all idolatry in that day, or almost all of it, involved sexual perversion, and almost all sexual perversion involved idolatry. Their temples were essentially brothels. And see, God kind of does the same thing in the Bible as well. He equates sexual immorality with idolatry and idolatry with sexual immorality. In the Bible, idolatry is adultery and adultery is idolatry. I mean, just read Hosea 1 through 3. Or Ezekiel 16, 25, where God says to his people, you you spread your legs like a harlot to everyone who passed by. And that's not so much a reference to sexual immorality as it is to their idolatry, but it's all one and the same. Now, in my opinion, the ancients understood something we moderns fail to understand. And that is that sex is more than just sex. That there is a spiritual power or force behind it. And so we just treat sex today like another pastime. When in reality, it's one of the most powerful forces on earth. I mean, sex doesn't fall in the category of tennis or golf or cribbage. Sex falls in the category of heroin and crack cocaine. Because there's a massive addictive power behind it. And it's a power that can destroy us by seducing us. So I think the Moabites and the Midianites are actually pretty wise here. Because they're thinking, maybe we can't take them out physically, but we sure can wipe them out morally and spiritually. And we can easily just take these guys out by seducing them into worshiping our God. And I'll tell you what, in no time at all, Israel would be swept away by this tsunami of sexual immorality. They'd still exist, but not as God's people, with God's calling, as God's bride. And I'll tell you what, there's more than even Balak and and Balaam strategizing here. There's even a power behind Balak. Who? Who? Satan. Balak's just a pawn. Right in Satan's hand. To wipe him out. And I look at our world and I just say, wow, not much has changed, has it? I uh, recently was made aware of this article that uh, uh, a lady, probably an agnostic atheist, certainly not a person of faith, wrote for the New York Times called Sex on Campus. Because there's this interesting development even in the just last five years. Yes, this has always existed, but this whole hookup thing. I mean, prior to, to, to the whole hookup thing, uh, you still had guy exchanging romance to girl girl would then exchange sex for that romance. Now, 
It's like, get the whole romance even out of the equation. It's just finding a stranger and hooking up. And I'll just tell you some of the things that this person who wrote this article called Sex on Campus uh, says. I mean, she interviewed 60 girls from Pennsylvania University, a prestigious university. Uh, She starts the whole article off with this one girl um, who says the relationship had nothing to do about the meeting of two souls. She says we really don't even like each other in person sober. She said, we literally can't even sit down and have coffee. But we hook up every weekend. I don't have time to to, to thumb through this. You can Google it uh, this week and read it. Um, Another uh, thing, she says in general, uh, she thought that the guys at Penn from this whole study controlled the hookup culture, but women also played a role as well. Um, she says it's kind of like a spiral. The girls adapt a little bit because they stop expecting that they're going to get a boyfriend because if that's all you're trying to do, you're just going to be disappointed and miserable. But at the same time, they want to have contact with guys. This is all quote from one of the girls she interviewed. So they hook up with the intent to not get attached. As if that can even happen. And then she says there's these crazy parties where all the guys take them deep into this like dungeon-like room and they're surrounding the, the walls in the dark and the girls are all in the middle dancing and I'm not even going to go into all the details of, of that. But she said women, coming out of describing that, women said universally that hookups could not exist without alcohol. Why? Because they were, for the most part, too uncomfortable to pair off with men they did not know well without being drunk. In fact, one girl explaining why her encounters freshman and sophomore years often ended up with fellatio said that by the time she got back to the guy's room, her buzz was starting to wear off, and she didn't want to be there anymore. So, I'll just perform fellatio. It's an easy way to wrap things up and get out of here. Also writing in November of Haley's freshman year, a couple months after her first tentative diffmo. These are these dance floor makeouts that lead to hooking up. She had too much to drink. She remembered telling the guy that she just wanted to go home. That's about all she could remember. Instead, she said he took her to his room and had sex with her while she drifted in and out of consciousness. She woke up with her head spinning. The next day, not sure what to think about what had happened, she described that night to her friends as though it were a funny story. <laughs> I was so drunk I fell asleep while I was having sex. Only later did Haley begin to think that what happened to her was rape, a disturbing commonly part of many women's college experience in a 2000 seven survey funded by the Justice Department of 6,800 undergraduates at two big-time universities. Nearly 14% of women said they had been victims of at least one completed sexual assault at college. More than half of the victims said they were incapacitated from drugs or alcohol at the time. And we're supposed to be okay with this. And I have a daughter. Whether it's sex on campus, we could t- spend a whole time talking about sex in the marketplace, sex on TV, sex in politics. I remember Randy telling me when he was starting to enter the political scene again, he couldn't believe how much the whole thing was driven by sex favors. Sex in sports, it's become the norm. And guess what? It's wiping us out. Because it's destroying marriages, it's destroying families, it's destroying people's self-worth and their sense of identity in this world, let alone all the rape and the abuse. I don't care what you think this morning, because I've, I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit. You can agree to disagree with me on this. But God had something incredibly specific when he created marriage. And when he created family. Those are God's brilliant ideas. And then when he created sex, which he placed in marriage. 
And we think we're smarter than God. And it's not going to have any effect. Stop and ask yourself, how are kids going to come into the world and be raised up and sent out without these basic building blocks? But we're smarter than God. I'll tell you what went hand in hand with, with, with the ancient sex, sexual practices and their temple worship and all that. Take a guess. Take a guess. What, as that went up, what else went on, up? Infanticide. And all of a sudden you went to the temple with your unwanted baby and you offered that baby to the gods. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He says, you know, if you want to remove a wall, you better at least ask why that wall was put there in the first place. And today, age-old walls are being removed all over the place. And no one's asking, why was it put there? When we yoke ourselves to the bale of pure, we are in danger of destroying ourselves and everything that's good. And our sexual ethic today is suicidal. And do I even dare ask about sex in the church? Are we any different? Is our view towards sex any different than that of the world? How prevalent today is premarital sex in the church? And adultery. Or all those secret sins of of pornography. Or maybe even at the first level, even how we dress. Are we different? The wages of sin is death. The worship of these gods, it is suicidal. It will wipe us out. It will wipe the church out. I'm going to tell you, the enemy's strategy is no different than what it was in the ancient times. He's still trying to seduce us. He's still trying to wipe us out by getting us to indulge in that forbidden fruit. He's desperately trying to destroy us through the worship of this idol sex. And when you and I and the church are no different than the world, Satan wins. Because God's first call to us is to be holy, is to be distinct, to be set apart as he is set apart, to not be like the world. Who has Hosea 9, verse 10? When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit of a big tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol. It became as vile as the thing they loved. Did you hear that last clause? They became as vile as the idol itself. Because we become what we worship. We do. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. (laughs) And what does it mean to reflect the image of God? It means to be a priest. So anytime we worship something that's not God, we progressively cease to be priests. Reflecting God's image back to the world. He says one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. He says those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These are the many forms of idolatry that when you combine them in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and to the lives of those they touch. That's what's at stake. Are you bearing his image? Are you holy? Am I holy as he's holy? Now look at God's response. (laughs) Boys will be boys is what God says, right? Look at verse 4. Take all the leaders 
of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. The word for kill there is not kill. It's impale. Impale is the Old Testament word for crucify. Who? The guilty? The leaders. Look at what Moses does in verse 5. So Moses said to Israel's leaders, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal pure. So this is a little bit different than what God says. Moses is actually holding who guilty? Those who are responsible. Those who actually were involved in the act. God, on the other hand, is holding the leaders responsible in other words, someone has to pay for the sin. God says, I want it to be those leaders. Now, I read this, and this scares me. Because there's a principle here for leaders. God does hold us responsible for the sins of the people. He holds his shepherds, he holds his kings, his elders, his parents responsible. And here's the deal. Every leader ought to be willing to die for the sins of the people. Moses had a place in the story was. He said, take my life, God, for the sake of the people. Paul, at one point in the story, says the same thing to God. God blot out my name for the sake of the people. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Don't become a leader or think about becoming a leader a husband, an elder, or a pastor, if you aren't willing to die for the sins of the people. Leadership God's way is not about getting power. It's about laying down your life. Now look at verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they are weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, can you picture Israel? Show me that picture again of the, of the tabernacle. <laughs> okay, so there's the entrance right there at the beginning. There's, there, that's the tent of meeting. All of Israel's gathered there. What are they doing? They're weeping. Why are they weeping? When's the last time we, as a church, just gathered to weep? Not for the sins of the world, but for our sins. Because that's what they're doing. They're weeping. They're broken. While they're doing this, an Israelite man walks right past that with his Midianite hottie and goes into the tent. Right in front of everybody. Phineas, grandson of Aaron, the high priest, he can't stand to watch this anymore. So he goes into that tent where this Israelite man and this Midianite, she's actually a princess, are copulating, and he throws a spear through them. Kind of a two-for-one sort of deal. In fact, verse 8, the original language really literally reads, they went into the tent and Phineas pierced both of them and the woman through her tent. In conjunction with this plague, God sends, or in, in conjunction with this, with this whole uh, spiritual adultery that's going on, God sends a plague that wipes out 24,000 of them. Now, I don't know what kind of plague this was, but I still find it incredibly interesting today how there's so little talk of all the STDs. And just as ironic, there's no cure. Except one. Abstinence. Which is the stupidest idea in the world, right? Now Phineas, his, 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 his chutzpah, chucks this plague and stops it. Numbers, the book, is called Numbers for what reason? 
Because at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, a census or a counting takes place. And when you look at the data of these two countings, because each tribe is counted, and it happens before this story and also after this story, all the tribes relatively stay the same or increase except for one tribe, which decreases by about 24,000 people. Which tribe would that be? Tribe of Simeon. Look at verse 14. Now, maybe just as jarring as, as Phineas's action in this whole deal is God's response to Phineas's action. Look at verses 11 to 13. Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, he turned my anger away from the Israelites since he was as zealous, or some of your Bibles say jealous. He was as jealous for my honor among them as I am, and I did not put an end to them in my jealousy or my zeal. Therefore, tell him I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was jealous or zealous for my honor. And he made atonement for the Israelites. God saw this man's zeal. And God says he was, he was zealous with my zealousness. Now, the word zeal in Hebrew is the word kana. It can mean jealous. It can mean zealous. In Jesus' day, a whole town called themselves, we are kana. That's where Jesus' first miracle took place. In fact, even in Jesus' day, there's a lot, large sector of people who call themselves kana. Our Bible calls them zealots. Jesus had one of these Cana guys amongst his 12. In fact, the zealots of Jesus' day, they looked to this very story as the basis for their whole movement. Does anybody have Psalm 106, 28 through 31? Did you, that's good. Did you hear that? For some of you who know your Old Testament well, and Abraham, what did it say about Abraham? And Romans picks up on this because of Abraham's faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. Your Bible is now saying the zeal of Phineas was credited to him as righteousness. Cana. What's Cana? It's having intense, intense passion. And see, today we're told that passion and conviction are dangerous. Let's all just talk like NPR. Let's just be monotone, stoic. I'll tell you what, um, if this is read wrong, it does produce religious fanatics. And there's a difference between fanaticism and kana, this intense passion. And I agree that if you look at a story like this at face value, it can provide fuel for the fanatic. But Phineas isn't a fanatic. He isn't the guy who goes out and bombs abortion clinics. He isn't the guy who picks up rocks and throws them at sinners. This is not a story of fanaticism, and we shouldn't use this to justify fanaticism. But I want us to recognize three things. First of all, sexual indulgence makes God angry. So much so that he's about ready to wipe out Israel. Look at verses 3 and 4. And there's this hipster Christianity movement today that doesn't like the idea that God gets angry. Are you kidding? God doesn't get angry? Let me explain that later. The second thing we need to recognize, God loves what Phineas did. 
so much so that it turned God's anger away from Israel and it stops the plague. The third thing we need to recognize is what God says about Phineas. He's like, here's a guy after my own heart. Here's a man who burns with the same passion that burns in me. Just like God will later do with David and say, here's a guy after my own heart. And like with David, then he's going to say, here's my kind of king. In fact, I'm going to promise a son to you, David, to the generations who always have my kingship. Does the same with Phineas. Here's my kind of priest. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Phineas. Your sons and the sons to follow will be my eternal priesthood. In other words, I want us to see that what makes many people cringe today, God looks at this same act and his heart just burns with delight. Why? Because Phineas burns, says God, with my jealousy. Not to, to explain all of this, because I really feel it does need an explanation, doesn't it? Who is God and who are God's people? See, I think, I think we look at a story like this and, and, and we just kind of see God as this jealous, overprotective boyfriend who's always threatened by any girl that enters the picture. And I'm going to tell you right now that God is not some jealous adolescent who's petty and selfish and insecure. God is jealous in the same way a husband is jealous for his wife. God is Israel's husband. Israel's God's bride. They are in a marriage. God is jealous for them. I mean, if my wife Libby just right now said to me and said, you know, Rod, we've been married for 20 years and I've actually come to this place where, you know, I really don't care if you have other lovers on the side. In fact, I don't really care if you have other romantic pursuits. In fact, to be honest with you, I don't even really care if you take those lovers in our house and and you want to go up into our bedroom. I, I don't really care. Do you know what you should be saying to me? I don't care about you. I don't care about us. I don't care about this marriage. And even if she just said that to me or then even live that out herself, I mean, I'd be infuriated because there's a furious side to love, especially jealous love between a husband and a wife. Spousal love is jealous love. Marriage is the only relationship that's exclusive. I can have many friends, I can have many children, but I only have one wife. And for my marriage to thrive, Libby must be number one. And if anything gets in the place of my love for her or takes the place of her being number one in my life, our marriage is in trouble. That's why the Ten Commandments, which are Israel's wedding vows, begin with this vow to God. There are to be no other lovers. You're not to bow down to them. You're not to worship them because God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous husband. He's passionately in love with his bride. And hipster Christianity wants to see God's love at this level, not at this level. This is why the greatest commandment is Shema. It's love the Lord your God, Israel, spouse, with everything you are and everything you have. Who has Isaiah 62 verse 5? I just saw it last week. I did a wedding. I'm up here. It's my favorite part in a wedding ceremony. The groom's standing right here, and I can just feel it. The door's back there open. Here's the bride, and he's literally like quaking the tears, and he's sobbing. That's how God looks at us. It's spousal love. It's a jealous love. And see, this is why Phineas' action, it's not fanatical, it's priestly, because a priest's job is to guard what? The garden. 
The garden is the tabernacle, the place where God's honor, the place where his presence dwell. In fact, zeal for God's house will consume a priest. So show me that PowerPoint again of that, that, that tabernacle. Because I want you to look closely at verse 6. Where are they weeping? God's people are weeping at the entrance to God's tent. Now look at verse 8. It says, and he followed the Israelite into not a tent, the tent. And he drove the spear into both of them right through the Israelite man. What tent? The tent. Now you do with this what you want, but you can make a strong argument that this isn't just any tent that this Israelite goes into. It's the tent. It's God's garden. This Israelite just boldly fornicated in the sanctuary, God's tent. And as this is going on, they're weeping, but no one's doing anything about it. And see, now we're right back in the Garden of Eden because when evil lurks and enters God's garden and tempts Eve with the forbidden fruit, tell me, where's Adam? Read Genesis 3, verse 6. He's right with her. He's just silent, passive, doing nothing, watching as this snake enters God's garden, God's holy place. And it's Adam's job to priest and to make war against anything that enters God's garden. He's called to honor and protect God's name. And there he is, passively doing nothing. Here's the deal. We're priests. Where are the Phineas? Where are they? Where are the men and women who will rise up and be priests today? Because God's word says our marriages, our families, they're to be sanctuaries. They're to be gardens that are to be cultivated with the very presence of God. They're to be holy of holies. Our bodies, says God, our gardens, they're sanctuaries of the most high God. They're to be guarded and protected. And see, where Adam failed to protect God's garden, Phineas rises up and he rejects passivity, as Greg Dempster would say, and he accepts responsibility. And with the passion and the zeal of God, he risks his life, he lays his life down for the sake of the marriage. I'm going to tell you who he points us to. He points us to the priests that our hearts long for. That perfect priest... Christ, who not only perfectly defends God's honor, I love what Jesus says about himself, quoting from the psalmist, he says, zeal for my father's house, for my father's garden, for his sanctuary, is consuming me. You know what he does next? He goes into that garden and he cleans house. He's a priest. And I'll tell you what, as the perfect priest, he turns away all God's anger against all our idolatry, all our adultery, all of our sin. He stops the plague, the plague of death and decay. He is the one who makes this eternal covenant of peace. He restores the marriage for which we are made. He gets us back into the garden. He makes perfect atonement. And I'm going to tell you something, whether you know this or not, you need atonement. Because don't you dare take your faith like so many Christians are doing out of the courtroom. God is a judge. And something has to be done about sin. And so don't remove that from your faith. 
But I'll tell you what we have. We have a perfect high priest, a perfect advocate who stands with us in that courtroom, whose case for us is perfect because he is perfect and because he took our punishment. He bore our sin. He stood in our place. He is the the supreme leader who was impaled for our sin. And through this, he perfectly atones for us. He perfectly covers us. He perfectly frees us. There's no condemnation. None. You can't condemn me because Jesus is my advocate. In fact, look at verses 11 through 13. Let's take uh, Phineas's name out of here and replace it with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, son of the most high God and son of man, the priest who's turned my anger away from the, from the Israelites Since he was zealous for for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell Jesus I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant, a lasting priesthood, because Jesus was zealous for the honor of his God, and he made atonement for the Israelites. I've gone way too long. I had one little P.S. If you want to hear it, I'll give it to you. It's right here in the text. Don't leave your faith in the courtroom, though. God is more than a judge. He is our spouse. And he loves us with a spousal love. And in light of that, we can take the spear out like Phineas, with Phineas's passion, and not throw it at sinners, but let it throw, be thrown into, into our sin and let it stab and spear and put to death any other lover, any other thing that gets in the way of this marriage. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our husband. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, everything you have. God, give us the passion and the zeal of Phineas. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand with me.